On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash big climb. Hey, it's Andy. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been reading along in The Athletic, you know we are doing our State of the Program series all summer, one team per day, checking in on every team in the FBS. We've run some monster State of the Program stories in the past week, and we're going to highlight three of those in today's podcast. We've got Ohio State, we've got Nebraska, and we've got Notre Dame. These are three programs They're in three different places. Two of them, Ohio State and Notre Dame, in fairly happy places. One of them, Nebraska, not where they thought they'd be going into the third year of the Scott Frost era, but how do they get out of that? How do they get where they want to be? We talk to our beat writers who cover each of those teams, and we're going to break it down for you and talk about what they've got coming back, the schedule they can expect to play, and just where these programs are at. And we'll start with the one... That is never bad. That's one of the commandments of college football. Ohio State is never bad. Ohio State is always good. And it really feels like under Ryan Day, they have taken another big step. This is a program that we last saw them in the Fiesta Bowl playing against Clemson. Uh, Very tough game. If you're an Ohio State fan, you probably feel like you got robbed by the refs. Ends on an interception thrown by Justin Fields where there's some miscommunication between Fields and, and Chris Olave. This was a great team last year. They lost some really good players. Chase Young, Jeff Okuda go in the top five of the draft. But they bring a lot back. They bring back Justin Fields, who's probably the Heisman Trophy favorite. This is a team that we know can make the playoff. The question is, can Ohio State take that next step and win a national title? We're going to talk about that next with Bill Landis, our Ohio State beat writer. joined now by Ohio State beat writer Bill Landis. Bill published his state of the program on Tuesday of this week. And uh, Bill, how hard is it to write, Ohio State's going to be awesome again every single year? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate, Andy, to uh, to have to just be able to copy and paste year to year. Um, no, I, I try to navigate that a little bit and, and my... People might define my navigating as nitpicking, but you know you got to try to make it interesting. You can't just write, "Hey, they're great again." You got to find areas that you know, you know, there there aren't many areas of concern, but you look hard for them. You can find them every now and then. Well, I, I think it's interesting with Ohio State because they did take a step last year back toward what they want, which is a national title, because they had not made the playoff since 2016. 
the time the last time they'd been in the playoff they'd been blown out and so this was different and, and they played against Clemson which wind up playing the national title game uh, if you're an Ohio State fan you probably think that, that Ohio State got jobbed in that game but if you're neutral you're, you're looking at like okay those were two really good teams those were two championship caliber teams and they were probably both going to lose to LSU but those are the type of teams you want to see competing for national titles. So Ohio State is there. They lose a lot, obviously, and you know you you lose Chase Young, Jeff Okuda. You know you you lose those caliber of players, but they've always been able to replace them. Is that still the case? Can they still lose a ton of of high end talent and just have somebody ready waiting in the wings? Yeah, I, I think so. It's, it's Ryan Day has found himself in the advantageous uh, position of starting his head coaching tenure at Ohio State, like right in the middle of Urban Meyer's best recruiting classes, like becoming sophomores and juniors. So while they have lost a lot of guys like like Chase Young and Jeff Okuda, Dobbins, like you mentioned, and, and those guys were key pieces in the 2017 class, uh, which was, at least on paper, like it was the best class Urban signed if you go by average player rating anywhere even better than, than its Florida classes. Um, most of that class is still around. Um, there are some marquee names that are gone, like the guys you mentioned, but Baron Browning is still around, Wyatt Davis, uh, Josh Myers is still around, Sean Wade, um, and those are kind of cornerstone pieces for this year. And then the 2018 class that came right behind them was arguably just as talented. The, the makeup was a little different, not quite as many five-star prospects, but more top 100 kind of national players and they're all, for the most part, still here. One or two guys has transferred out of the program. but So that that's the bulk of your roster if you're Ryan Day, are the two best recruiting classes Urban Meyer signed in his seven years at Ohio State. So uh, I, I guess it's dangerous to assume automatically every year that they're just going to reload, but they certainly have the makeup for their, through their recruiting to, to be in that position once again. The, the interesting thing in year one of Ryan Day that I, that I think stood out was they didn't have one of those what-the-hell games. There wasn't the Purdue game. There wasn't an Iowa game. There was not a game like that where you looked and said they didn't perform the way they're supposed to. And is that Ryan Day? Is that just this group is more was more mature? Is it because Justin Fields is a better quarterback than, than they've had, which is saying something because they've had some pretty good ones? But what, why do you think that is that they, they eliminated that game from their resume last year and, and seem capable of doing that going forward? It's a lot of the things you mentioned. I, I would probably put it mostly on what I consider to be some some better coaching kind of across the board. And it's not I'm not trying to go down the road of, of who's better, Urban or Ryan Day. Although I think Urban Meyer was a really good coach. Right, right. <laughs> we will we will start and end there. Yes, but I think I think you and I would probably agree, and most Ohio State fans would agree that Urban did not make great assistant hires like toward the latter end of his career. Like, he certainly did about a thousand when he was doing that. I guess not every coach does, but I think they felt negative impacts of some questionable assistant coaching hires in a very tangible way over the latter, uh, you know, two or three years of Urban's tenure in Columbus. And I thought the staff that Ryan brought in last year were just like really smart, kind of forward thinking. X's and O's guys, and, and obviously they're good recruiters, and that's important too. But I just think there was a lot of good foot. There were a lot of good football minds on the staff last year, and that all kind of came together. And they put it. They put a very solid plan into place that served their talent really well. And I don't know 
especially on the defensive side um, when Greg Schiano was, was here for the last couple of years, if they were always doing that with their personnel, which is why you saw the teams they played go put up 70, 80 yard touchdowns against them. Like it was nothing like the about the rate at which they gave up big plays was incredible until last year when they got a lot of things figured out defensively. They've always been pretty good offensively. Brian Day's taken them in a little bit different direction, but for the most part, they've always been pretty explosive and dynamic offensively. Where it really changed last year was defensively. And you give a lot of credit to Greg Madison and Jeff Halfley, who's no longer there, but something just came together on that side of the ball, I think, that that made last year just look a, a lot different. And, you know, they're, they're, I think they're a better quarterback than they had been, uh, at least more dynamic with Justin Fields really good up front with their offensive line. J.K. Dobbins took a major step forward. Like There were a lot of things, but but for me it goes back to, to coaching and kind of getting on the same page and putting the players in, in the best position to be successful. You mentioned the the coaching staff and, and Jeff Halfley. He, you know, he's now the head coach at Boston College. Kerry Coombs, who's very familiar with Ohio State people, is back as, as the D.C. and working with Greg Madison. Do you see any sort of, of change there, anticipating sort of – drop off or, or rise up uh, from that change or just is it just keep doing what you're doing it's going to be really difficult to replicate what they did last year it's so like they went from in 2018 the worst defense in the history of the program we're talking 100 plus years of ohio state football that's how bad they were and then in 2019 they were among the best they've ever had it was arguably the best defense in the country at least from a statistical standpoint um, so matching that again will be hard i don't think they're going to take a huge step back um, but but they're going to find some pieces, ways to make up for Chase Young and Okuda, like you were talking about earlier. From a schematic standpoint, it's hard to get a real handle on what they're going to change because we hadn't seen spring ball, and that's the case for everybody. I think Kerry Combs coming in from the Tennessee Titans and learning a little more football than he had learned when he was an assistant here previously, coaching the cornerbacks. He'll come here and try to enhance some things. I, I think if you went back and – if you watched Ohio State's entire season and then watched the Fiesta Bowl – they were trying to do some stuff with two safeties on the field that they hadn't really done all year, but they had to do against Clemson and it didn't, didn't work out that well. Um, and I think Kerry Combs is coming to diversify that kind of stuff, solidify them in those areas. But what you saw last year with the single high safety, you know, they've been a four, three team forever. Um, I think that is largely going to stay the base and then we'll see what kind of, you know, wrinkles Kerry Combs can throw in, whether they pressure more, whether they diversify some of the coverages, but largely I think it, to the untrained eye, I think it will look mostly the same. When we talk about Ohio State, you know, compared to other teams, when we do these state of the program things, there's so few holes. The Buckeyes don't really have holes in their roster. Uh, if they were going to have one this year, it was going to be running back. How big was getting Trey Sermon as a grad transfer from Oklahoma? Huge. And I don't, I don't think he'll, he's going to come in and like be J.K. Dobbins. J.K. Like, J.K. was the first Ohio State running back to run for 2,000 yards. It's the first back since Eddie George to get 300 carries in one season. I don't, still don't think people fully appreciate exactly what J.K. Dobbins did last year for Ohio State. And I'm talking about people in Columbus. Um, Trey Sermon, I don't think, is going to come in and do that, nor do I think he should be expected to come in and do that because he's never been that in his career. But he's very good. And if he is your lead guy in like a tandem or a trio with a Mark or Master Teague who's coming off an Achilles injury and a Marcus Crowley who's coming off a knee injury, I think that's pretty good. Um, if anything, Trey Sermon brings you experience, experience on a playoff team, experience in big games. He is a graduate. He's an older guy. Um, he's probably a little more physically mature than some of the other guys they had in that room had they not brought him in. So it's a big deal. And, and I think his skill set gives them the opportunity to maybe get their running back involved in the pass game a little more maybe than, than it has been in the past too. So it's not, um, it's not 
totally filling the void of J.K. Dobbins, but it's certainly a better step had they not brought in anybody and just had the role with a bunch of sophomores who really hadn't played all that much. Let's talk schedule, Bill, because you know you look at it, assuming everything goes as planned, and I realize that that's quite an assumption given the way the last few months have gone, but let's say it goes as planned and they play in Eugene on September 12th. That's a great test, it seems to me, playing as a, a very good offensive line. Uh, Oregon has Penny Sewell, who may be the best offensive tackle in the country. A really good defensive line. Kayvon Thibodeau was the number one recruit in the country last year and and really improved as the season went on. How good of a, a test right off the bat is that for Ohio State? And is it is it potentially tougher than anything else they have the rest of the way? I, the game in State College really is the only other one that, that seems to stack up to that. Yeah, that that'll be the only one, and, and I guess we'll assume for now that it would be it's Alton Stadium, like as we have come to know it, and not an empty Alton Stadium because that obviously plays a part too. Uh, it's a huge measuring stick. Now, it's 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 an interesting position for Ohio State because they could, in theory, lose that game and still be fine and just go win the Big Ten and then go to the playoff and you're good. Um, but you can learn a lot about where exactly they are. It's kind of like the Oklahoma game they played in 2016 when they went there, and it was like, whoa, we didn't realize this team was that good. Um, I think this is similar. I the, the major questions I have about Ohio State are on the defensive side, and I think that's the case for everybody. So I am very intrigued by the idea that we're going to see that defense very early go try to contend with whatever Joe Moorhead's going to do with Oregon's offense. Like I think that's going to be awesome and tell us a lot about where they are defensively. So when Nick Bosa went down a couple of years ago, that's when everybody realized what who Chase Young was and, and how great he was. Who's the next guy we're going to be talking about like that? I, I, it would have to be Zach Harrison, I guess. He's he's the next five-star defensive end in sort of the, the conveyor belt they have going to the NFL at the moment. Um, he, he played uh, a decent amount last year. He's actually started in the Fiesta Bowl. He was not super productive, but Zach Harrison – for people listening here, like aren't familiar with him and don't follow Ohio State closely, he's about six six. He's got the longest arms I've ever seen. Uh, by this point, he's probably 260, 270 pounds, and he was kind of that big in high school. And he ran a ten seven hundred meter in sneakers in the rain when he was in high school. And that is who, like, that is the physical athletic profile of the next guy in Ohio State's defensive end room. Um, so it's insane that they keep getting. <laughs> better in terms of raw material now he may wind up not wind up being better than chase young or better than a bosa brother but like just if you if you me- if you take their measurables and and the physical traits they keep getting better yeah like the next guy i remember when the first time we were out there and chase young I was like who's that nfl player the next guy's gonna be a robot yeah he might as well be honestly it's it's unbelievable and they have one coming in the 2021 class i can name jack sawyer who's a local kid like he's the guy behind him but and they had Tyreek Smith, too, who's also a defensive end, who was a pretty highly rated guy. He's a year older than Zach Harrison. But in terms of who's going to make the jump from, like, you don't really know who this guy is to, whoa, this guy's a star, and then who's going to go be a top five pick in a year, Zach Harrison is that guy. All right, Bill. I know it's tough to keep writing similar stories, but I think you nitpick very well. I am very impressed with your nitpicking. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Andy. Why not spend some time on yourself? Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving thanks to their Lawnmower 3.0. The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with a new and improved Lawnmower 3.0 waterproof cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. This third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents because Lord knows 
We don't want any of those. Shaving is about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin-safe technology. Subscribe to the Perfect Package and get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. This is the Perfect Package for your Perfect Package. So do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code THEATHLETIC. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one but two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag at $39 value and the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. So go to manscaped.com and use the code THEATHLETIC. Thanks again to Bill Landis for breaking down the Buckeyes for us. We move now to another program in the Big Ten where things are not quite as rosy as everybody thought they were going to be when they made a coaching change following the 2017 season. Scott Frost was coming off an undefeated season at UCF. He was coming home to Nebraska, and the thought was, now Nebraska is going to be a contender. There's a guy who understands the type of athlete Nebraska needs, who understands the history of the program and can tap into that and do it, not necessarily the way Tom Osborne did exactly, but he understands what matters to people in Nebraska. And he understands the type of players you need to compete with the Ohio States and the Penn States of the world. So what has happened? Well, nine wins has happened in two seasons. This is not where Nebraska expected to be. The question now is, how long is it going to take Scott Frost to get Nebraska? They got a pretty key coaching staff change this offseason. And then we'll see what happens because they didn't have but two spring practices to use new offensive coordinator Matt Lubick. We'll find out what they're going to do when they get back in camp, but it's just going to be a lot slower process for Nebraska and as you'll see in my conversation with our beat writer, Mitch Sherman, that schedule is a real impediment to success. You can look at the back half of it and say, wow, that's brutal. But the front half of it is pretty intriguing in its own right. We'll talk about that with Mitch when we come back. We are here now with Mitch Sherman, the Athletics Nebraska beat writer, the Cornhusker State of the program, little different than the other two programs we're talking about today. Ohio State and Notre Dame are in very happy places. Nebraska is probably not where everybody thought they'd be when they hired Scott Frost. They've changed offensive coordinators, Mitch. How do they feel going into year three of the Scott Frost regime? Yeah, Andy, definitely not where Nebraska thought that it would be heading into 2020. You know, in, in a lot of ways, and every team's in a different place right now because of the complexities of this offseason, but even removing that from the equation, nine wins in two seasons, a four-win season in, in 2018, and then the five-win season especially in 2019, you know, really uh, came in under the, um, you know, the cutoff for expectations, at least, at the very least, Nebraska – was expected to get back to the postseason in 2019. And, and for a variety of reasons, it didn't happen. Uh, number one, quarterback Adrian Martinez was not healthy for a good chunk of the year. But it, it can't all be on his shoulders. There was some, I would say, dissension among the ranks in the way that – and I mean the coaching ranks in the way that Nebraska 
wanted to run its offense. The vision that Scott Frost had for his offense deviated somewhat from the vision of his coordinator, Troy Walters, who uh, as a result is, is now working for the Cincinnati Bengals. And you have Matt Lubick, uh, who took a year off last season after working at Washington and going back a few years before that at Oregon with Scott Frost uh, on, on, the, um, on, on that staff in Eugene. So Lubick and Frost reunited in hopes of having a Nebraska, leading a Nebraska offense that looks a little bit more like what people saw at UCF in 2017 and what Nebraska has expected of, of Frost in the first few years. What's interesting to me is Frost was adamant about bringing his entire UCF staff to Nebraska, and he did. Now this is the first we've seen where that staff is not together. Javon DeWitt went to North Carolina, uh, and, and then Walters is gone. Now, it, it's interesting because it's, this is not a change in play caller. Scott Frost remains the play caller, right? This is, this is more organizational Correct. practice, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're looking for a revamped offense, courtesy of Matt Lubick, you know, you're not going to get that. You're, you're going to get a guy who sees more eye to eye, I think, with the direction that Scott Frost wants to take this thing. I, incidentally, Matt Lubick was a consultant for Scott Frost last season while, while he took the, the year off. And, and Wait, so the guy they replaced the offensive coordinator with was already in the building? I can't imagine why there might have been some well, internal strife. Well, he was out of the building, but, but uh, you know, he was on the phone. You know, they were, they were talking like we are right now about, about the Nebraska offense. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can look at it from that perspective and say that things were a bit dysfunctional. And I think any team that had the expectations that Nebraska did, remember, at this time a year ago, people were, were looking at Nebraska as a favorite in the Big Ten West, and they go out and win five games. Um, there, there is going to be a certain level of dysfunction, and, and I think a lot of it had to do with, with that, uh, that forward movement, that evolution of the offense that has not progressed in the way that Frost hoped in two years. Well, it, and it's interesting when you look at the Big Ten West because I was a little surprised that people thought Nebraska was going to win it last year because I thought it felt like the whole division was taking a step forward almost at once. You, you, the thought would be Illinois would be better. Uh, mm -hmm. Minnesota was had gotten better at the end of the previous season. And so you did see – a big step forward for Minnesota. Uh, you saw Wisconsin kind of get back to, to what Wisconsin is, and you saw Illinois be quite a bit better. Now Northwestern fell off a little bit. But that that's the part I, I have a hard time with with Nebraska in the assumption that they are going to suddenly be a major contender in the Big Ten West is there's already a lot of pretty good teams in the Big Ten West. They, they've got to climb a little higher, it feels like. Yeah, we haven't even talked about Minnesota, and Minnesota is the team I think that surprised people the most in in 2020, or certainly is the team that surprised people the most in 2020, or I'm sorry, in 2019. Um, you saw the Gophers coming off of a strong finish in 2018 in PJ Fleck's second year, but I think there was some some real question about whether the staying power was there and whether Minnesota, you know, was for real at the end of the 18 season, and and obviously um, they were. Um, Nebraska just had had its it was embarrassed in Minneapolis last season and then it was really status quo for what has been the case for much of Nebraska's time in the Big Ten when the Huskers played Wisconsin and, and Iowa last year and both of those games were at home uh, so you have to go on the road this year to Madison and to Iowa City and the final five game stretch for Nebraska is it's just brutal 
it's brutal. I mean, you go to Ohio State on uh, on on Halloween, and and then it doesn't get a whole lot better uh, through the month of November. So there isn't the same kind of expectation going into this season that we saw a year ago. I think most people are of the mind that if Nebraska can get back to the postseason, much like the thought was before Frost's first year in 18, that you're looking at some success or, or at least a step in the right direction because of how difficult that final month on, this, on the schedule is. It, it, is that amazing to you that three years in, the expectations are now back to where they were in year one? It, it's, um, it's not amazing having seen everything happen up close. Uh, there, there have been missteps. There have been miscalculations. Um, you know, there have been things that have exposed Scott Frost for his lack of experience. This is his first job as a Power 5 head coach. He had two years of head coaching experience before he came to, back to Nebraska, back meaning, you know, for, to, to his, his, uh, this, this side of his playing career. Um, you know, a lot of that was, was overlooked. A lot of that was not mentioned when Bill Moose made this hire in December of 2017. There was so much excitement about the fact that Nebraska was getting Tom Osborne's last quarterback, the national championship winning guy from 1997 who grew up in Little Wood River, Nebraska, and had all the success in 17 at UCF. And there was not a whole lot of thought given to the fact that he had not been through these these types of battles that he would face in the Big Ten. And it's, it's, been, a, it's been a learning curve. I think there was a, a little bit of a misread of the UCF situation because he had taken over a team that had not won a game the year before he got there. You know, they have a, a six and seven season and then they go undefeated. But that that was not a normal situation. You know, George O'Leary had recruited really good talent for that team He'd not treated that talent particularly well. They mutinied on him, and then they didn't win a game, and he was out. And so what Frost walked into was not your typical rebuild because there was a lot of talent on that team. And I remember uh, one of your colleagues from Lincoln, I, I, I think it might have been Lee Barfnick, uh, came down to a UCF game, Frost, last year and mm -hmm. was stunned at the amount of athletes on the field for UCF. Yeah. And I'm I'm still not sure Nebraska's there or close to there yet in terms of personnel. No, I, I would say Nebraska's not athletically where UCF was or, or, or really all that close to it if you compare Nebraska right now to UCF in, in 17. I mean, just the recruiting ground that Scott Frost and his staff had to work with. And, and, and granted – they didn't recruit the vast majority of the players who starred on that on, on that 2017 team, but they had the most important had, one, Mackenzie Milton. They had a hand in getting a quarterback from Hawaii who was who was pretty darn important to that to that uh, to that championship run. And you know the same thing can be said of what Nebraska's done in the first two years here in Lincoln. In that job number one, when Frost was hired on that December day after winning the American Conference Championship was to go out and find a quarterback. And he did right away and he found Adrian Martinez. And I think we'd be having a different conversation right now if Adrian Martinez had picked up where he left off at the end of his freshman year, but he had a knee problem. He had a shoulder problem. He had off-season surgery. He lost some confidence. His receivers let him down at times. His tight ends didn't develop into the, the, the kind of playmakers that Nebraska had expected. So if the Huskers were you know, eight and eight and four last season coming off of a four and eight year 
in Frost's first year, this conversation would be a lot different. And, and, you know, I think there's still enough reason to believe that Nebraska, even if it doesn't show in the record in 2020, can make that kind of a step in his third season. Well, and, and that's the thing. They, they can build a foundation. It does seem that Nebraska, at least from an administrative standpoint, is going to be very patient with Scott Frost. You saw them extend him last season where – you know, we're looking at, okay, who's trying to hire him right now? Why are you bothering to extend him? But it does send the message, hey, we're in this for the long haul with him because this is the point where with Mike Riley, it was about to break. Yeah, it was a state. I mean, it really his first two years, or Riley's first two years, just in terms of the record, stack up well against Scott Frost. Now I would say that there are other things in the program that are headed in a better direction after two years with Frost in charge than what you saw um, in, at the end of the 2016 season with Mike Riley, but um, it comes down to wins and it comes down to commitment of, of the administration, like you said. And that was a statement to extend him after, after less than two years to get him back to seven years on his contract. It was meant to send a message to recruits. It was meant to send a message to the country that Nebraska would have more patience than Arkansas did with its second-year coach, than Florida State did with its second-year coach. And at the same time, or right around the same time, Nebraska made a commitment to build a $155 million football complex that is all very much Scott Frost design. It's meant to serve his roster and the needs of his team. So uh, in no time soon is, is, is Bill Moose and the administration at Nebraska considering throwing in the towel on this situation, even if it doesn't improve a great deal as far as the record in, in the next season or so. Can they be in a position to win games if Adrian Martinez isn't healthy? Well, we got to see how good Luke McCaffrey is. Um, you know, there was talk before the spring was shortened to just two practices that Luke McCaffrey was going to challenge Adrian Martinez for, for the job. And you know, that's, that may not have been the opinion uh, of the coaches, but it, it was of people outside the program. And I think at the, at the very minimum, McCaffrey, just because of his, his athleticism that we saw on display as a true freshman last year in the four games that he played, he was going to get some kind of a look. You know, they want to get a lot out of him in this offense. Clearly, he's one of the better players on the offensive side for Nebraska. And with the way that this team is still trying to accumulate talent, you can't afford to have a guy like that sitting on, on the bench 90% of the time. So the spring was going to be big, one – for presenting some kind of a challenge to Adrian Martinez to step up and be the player, grow upon, you know, be, be, be a better player than what Nebraska saw, had from him at, in his freshman year in 18, and also to find a way to incorporate, incorporate Luke McCaffrey into the offense. And if that meant giving him a chance to win the job, then great. If it meant making him some kind of a hybrid um, quarterback receiver who can impact the game in a lot of ways, and that was great. That'd be great too. But, uh, you know, with spring completely taken away or 90% of it taken away, uh, that's going to be a lot more difficult. To answer your question, uh, the Scott Frost system and, and now the, the Frost Lubick system, it's, in, it's, it's built so much around having a, a guy at the quarterback position who can be a dominant player. And you've, you saw it with Frost. Uh, and Marcus Mariota teaming up at Oregon. You saw it at UCF with Mackenzie Milton. And I think it's got to be that way with Adrian Martinez or Luke McCaffrey. 
right. uh, in order for Nebraska to to uh, to have a great have a have an ab- above expectation year this next season. You mentioned the tail end of the schedule. I'm really intrigued by the beginning of their schedule because, you know, they they have to kick off against Purdue, a conference opponent that they have not beaten under Scott Frost. That's a that's a pretty big one. And then obviously Jeff Brom and Purdue have a lot to prove after a very disappointing year after he got paid buku bucks to to not go to Louisville. But the the non-conference is fascinating for Nebraska because I think to the untrained eye, you go, oh, Central Michigan, South Dakota State, Cincinnati, whatever. All three of those teams were good last year, and Cincinnati could be really, really good. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would make Nebraska a favorite in that game today. Uh, it, it would be. I mean, it's at Memorial Stadium. There, and, and it's not going to be Memorial Stadium with with ninety thousand people. I, I know it's a, it's a different conversation, but uh, a half empty or completely empty Memorial Stadium is a lot different place, a lot less daunting place for for Cincinnati to come into than it is. They played at the a, Rose Bowl last year, Mitch. They're used to playing in empty stadiums. They, that's where they played UCLA last year. So <laughs> at empty stadiums, yeah. Well, I, that that that's uh, th- there is a lot there in the non-conference to to chew on. And South Dakota State, look, Nebraska doesn't have any business losing to South Dakota State, but every kid on that South Dakota State roster come into Lincoln, it, it's it's as big of a game as they've played in their career. There are a ton of Nebraska kids who didn't have the opportunity to get a scholarship at Nebraska and and went up and and play FCS football in South Dakota, uh, who who can't wait. For, for, for that day. And it's, it's, it's just, it's just sitting out there. I believe South Dakota state is ranked number two in the preseason in the FCS. And it's crazy to, to, to fret about that if you're Nebraska, but if you're coming off of a five and seven season, it's not the game you want to see there. And then central Michigan was, was maybe the most improved team in the country last year. So yeah, yeah there's a lot of intrigue to, uh, to that non-conference for sure. Yeah. The, the Northwestern and Illinois, the, those games look huge after the non-conference to start Big Ten play because you could have a sandwich of maybe Cincinnati doesn't go well at all because, again, they could be really good, and then you've got that that monster finish. And that's the thing. This is probably the, the hard part for old-line Nebraska people to hear and for, for people nationally who are just still used to Nebraska being a power. But Ohio State, Penn State, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota. So Ohio State, Penn State, and Wisconsin, Nebraska is not in the same class as those programs right now. It's trying to get back there, but they're just not there yet. Absolutely not. And, and I mean, can you can you find a way to pull an upset in one of those games? Sure. Could Nebraska beat Penn State in in Memorial Stadium in November? Yeah, it could happen. Huskers have not won games like that in the last ten years plus. They just haven't been a team that's found a way to win games they weren't expected to win. In much the same way that Nebraska, in its glory days, never lost games, that it, that, that it was never on the wrong side of an upset. Right. Nebraska's never on the right side of an upset in the, in the current state of this program. So um, at some point, that day is going to come. Presumably, it's going to happen with Scott Frost as the coach that they're going to find a way to win one of those games, whether it's a Wisconsin or an Ohio State or a Penn State, that this team just doesn't have any business beating right now. And maybe that'll be a springboard for, for greater, greater things ahead. Maybe it'll happen in November of 2020. So expectations back probably where they should be, as opposed to last year. Schedule, oh <laughs> boy. Mitch Sherman, thank you so much for joining us. All right, thanks, Andy. All right. All right.
Thanks again to Mitch Sherman for coming on to talk Nebraska. He gets those questions so often. When's Nebraska going to be back? I know he's tired of it, but he's great at explaining exactly how Nebraska got here and what they have to do to get back. Pete Sampson, who covers Notre Dame for us, had to answer a lot of those questions a few years ago after a disastrous 2016 season for Notre Dame. But the Irish really did rebound from that and have been a very good program, one of college football's best programs over the last three years. And the question now is, can they be a consistent double-digit win team? Can they compete for the playoffs every year? You know, look at the schedule. There are some games that if you win them, you prove yourself a playoff contender. They've got to play Wisconsin and Green Bay. They get Clemson at Notre Dame. But are they deep enough? Is Ian Book a good enough quarterback to elevate the rest of their offense to get to that level? That's the question that Notre Dame has to answer this year. And Pete Sampson is here to break it all down for us. We're joined now by Notre Dame beat writer Pete Sampson from The Athletic. And and Pete, I enjoyed your scene in your State of the Program story about Notre Dame's first spring practice and and how quiet and and quietly confident it was. That's the only practice they got, though, right? That is correct. That is your only look at Notre Dame in 2020 so far. It is. And a lot of teams are in that boat, but it feels like for Notre Dame, that's not as harmful as it is for for teams that have not had that kind of continuity but that you know it feels like since that disaster of a 2016 season Notre Dame has been very steady yeah absolutely and I I think that this team in particular you have a third year defensive coordinator and Clark Lee who's really good and then even with a first year offensive coordinator and Tommy Reese you know he's been in the program played it and has coached in the last few years. Um, I, their, their offensive system is not going to change that much. And then you bring back a third-year starting quarterback and five starters on the offensive line. To, to me, that's sort of the makings of a team that can sort of withstand the disruptions of the schedule. Um, that doesn't mean that they're going to be a playoff team, but I think that they're not going to be a, a group that's, I think, going to be as behind as, as much as some, maybe some other programs are once the season gets going. Well, and you mentioned disruptions to the schedule, and and Notre Dame is one of the schools that actually has had its schedule already disrupted, but we got word on Tuesday that they're going to play Navy not in week zero in Dublin, but in week one in Annapolis, and the only question now is, is that game going to be on Saturday or Sunday? Right, and then how many people can attend, which is, you know, the the question for everybody, right? And it's a, it's the first time in the 94 94- years of the series that it will be played in Annapolis, which is kind of wild to think about. Um, I know that Notre Dame was exploring more, you know, the traditional NFL venue, whether it be Baltimore or FedEx field, but with the uncertainty around how many people can actually attend the game, the utility of that, and just sort of the operational knowledge that Navy has with his own stadium. It just, it makes too much sense not to just play it on campus. So um, yeah, that was, I think we all knew the Ireland thing was going to, be one of the first scheduling alterations of of the pandemic, and and sure enough, here we are on, on Tuesday, June second. They finally uh, finally got to that point. Stat Notre Dame fans do not want to hear courtesy of the research I did for my mailbag column last week, Pete. This is completely random, by the way. <laughs> Navy outperforms the spread 
by an average of 5.9 points per game at home since 2014. Leading the nation. Mm. Yeah, that's as if this game didn't already send Notre Dame fans into a panic um, that, that you're really just throwing some gasoline on that at that point. Cause it's, it's just one of those games where if, even when you're up 21 in the fourth quarter, you're like, okay, it's fine. Um, I don't think Notre Dame ever feels totally comfortable in this series. And the fact that it's being played in Annapolis, uh, you know, I think in some ways if it's, if there's no crowd, uh, that may actually be significant in Notre Dame's favor because, you know, anytime you get firsts involving Notre Dame football, there aren't a lot of them anymore. Um, that, that would be a big event for Navy. Yeah. And now you, you mentioned Notre Dame fans panicking and, and I feel like they are a particularly jumpy group given what <laughs> they've seen the last few years. I feel like they should be fairly calm right now. This is a, this is a very steady program. You look at the schedule. It's not monstrous this season. They, they do have to play Wisconsin and Green Bay, and that, that's going to be tough. Uh, they've got Clemson, which, look, you know, that, that's the deal they have with the ACC. They're going to see Clemson every once in a while. So I, I feel like Notre Dame is in a good position to be competitive again. You know, I don't know if, if Notre Dame's going to be a playoff team. Obviously, they probably have to beat Clemson, uh, you know, you and I have had this discussion. I feel like Notre Dame's trade-off for being able to continue being independent but still having a shot at the playoff is you've got to be undefeated to make the playoff. Right. You lose the benefit of the doubt if you're 11-1, and one, and I think Notre Dame is okay with that. It's a, it's a deal they're willing to make. And, I mean, you're right. Over the last three years since sort of the, the reboot after the 2016 disaster – they're 33 and six um, Notre Dame fans. Some Notre Dame fans will tell you, well, they haven't really beaten anybody. And a lot of Notre Dame fans will tell you, well, they don't really lose to a lot of people either, which is why they have 33 wins And that. That sort of almost boring um, consistency is, you know, Notre Dame has been too dramatic for its own good for mo- most of the last 20 years. So to get to a point where you're averaging 11 wins um, per season, that's, that's a healthy position, but it, at some point, they are going to have to jump up and get somebody like Clemson or Georgia, um, you know, or, or win a game like Michigan on the road. You know, maybe that's Wisconsin at Lambeau um, to sort of get over the hump because right now they're sort of stuck in that second tier at the at the back of the top ten or just outside of it. And that uh, that was fun in year one, I think, for a lot of Notre Dame fans, and it was great in year two when they made the playoff. And in year three, they go eleven and. Too, and I think there, it was just it felt very unfulfilling. It, it felt like sort of an empty calories schedule. Um, so they they got it. I think people are looking for some red meat around here that uh, you know they can get into. And, and Clemson and Wisconsin represent that. Well, that the Michigan game last year was the anomaly on Notre Dame's schedule. It was the one that didn't make sense. The result didn't make sense. It didn't make sense if you'd watched Michigan most of the year. And that that's the one. You know, how does Notre Dame avoid? Uh, a pitfall like that because also in the show we're talking to Bill Landis from Ohio State and one of the things that Ohio State did last year that was a correction of things that had happened before is they got rid of that what the hell game and if you're Notre Dame how do you avoid having that that odd just what just happened here performance I you know think back to to when they went down to Miami or the, the Michigan game last year you know, it's the Miami game felt like they did get it corrected based in terms of how they trained in the off 
off season. Um, you know, some of it was sort of the hokey, oh, there's a soccer ball in the middle of practice, or you know, or now you have ten guys and you got to figure out how to score a touchdown. Uh, but I mean, some of it was just the old school strobe light weight room, um, Miami highlights playing that I think sort of hardened the team to okay, stuff isn't always going to go to plan here, and you got to figure it out. The Michigan game was even more bizarre to me than Miami game. Notre Dame's coming off a bye week, and Brian Kelly has been excellent uh, after off weeks. Michigan was coming off a loss at Penn State. And, I mean, the the gist of it that I could tell is, like, Notre Dame had dead legs when the game started, as, as if there was something off with the training and then the weather went bad. And, you know, Michigan rose to the occasion, and Notre Dame just run and hid. It, it was a game that you could tell one team – just almost didn't want to be out there. So I, I don't know if there's a great solution to that. Um, Notre Dame really doesn't have that kind of game on the schedule this year. Um, unless, you know, you're talking about USC at the end of the year. I mean, Lambeau will be neutral ish. Um, Clemson is here. And then you got USC at the end. And that is not an overly hostile place to play in, in current circumstances. So I, I don't think they're going to run into that kind of environment. Um, but it was it was shocking to see that happen last season. So Ian Book is back. Year three is the starter. You mentioned five returning offensive line. It feels like the offense is very, very set. Defensively, I think about the secondary because, you know, that secondary last year, so a lot of those guys had had to play as freshmen. We, we keep bringing up 2016, but it does feel like kind of a seminal moment in this program's recent history. A lot of those guys had to play in 2016 and kind of got thrown to the wolves, and their development sort of mirrored the program's rise. Now you've got a little bit of a rebuild in the secondary. What happens there? It's tough. Uh, Kyle Hamilton at safety is a superstar. I mean, he's a, he's a first-round pick, the kind of kid that is at Ohio State and Alabama um, and Clemson sort of in duplicate. Nerdy doesn't have a lot of those. So he's sort of your single high safety that lets you get creative at the back end of the defense. But corner is – it's tricky. Um, they brought in a grad transfer from NC State, Nick McLeod. Um, they have a grad transfer from Ohio State, named is Isaiah Pryor. Uh, and they're hoping they can get something out of those guys, even if they're not starting, that they can be in their top six. With, without those grad transfers, I think they would be in a world of trouble uh, at the back end of the defense – well, and, and I think it's depth there that, that has been the issue. And, and really, that, that feels like Notre Dame's not necessarily issue with winning games. It's, it's Notre Dame's issue when they play a Clemson. Because Clemson can lose a guy at the top of the depth chart, and the person they put in is not that big of a drop-off. Notre Dame has gotten deeper as the, as the years have gone on under Brian Kelly, but it doesn't feel like they quite yet quite there yet where say a Clemson or an Ohio state or, or a Georgia or an Alabama would be. Well, yeah. I mean the cotton bowl from two years ago is a perfect example. Dexter Lawrence gets suspended, you know, defensive tackle from Clemson. No problem. Uh, Notre Dame is only able to get three points. Julian love misses a quarter with a head injury and Notre Dame secondary completely implodes. Um, Justin Ross and T Higgins are running all over them. Uh, so it's, they're not there yet. And, you know, unless their recruiting really takes an uptick, this cycle has been a real struggle for them with the coronavirus, you know, dead period. I don't think they're going to get there. Um, you know, this year is a little bit different because the cotton bowl, you're starting really a first year starting quarterback who's a half season into the beginning of his career. Now you've got a third year starter. 
I think for Notre Dame to get over the hump, they're going to have to have elite quarterback play. That's more likely to get them there than enhanced depth across the board. Because I, I think that's just – it's very unlikely that they're going to have a roster that looks like Clemson or Ohio State. They could sometimes have a quarterback that looks like the quarterbacks at Ohio State or Clemson. Um, I don't think Ian Book is that guy, but you know, is can that third-year experience really make up for maybe some of the physical things that he doesn't have that uh, the other elites do? Well, let, let's talk about Ian Book because he's been a, a good quarterback since he's been the starter. Obviously, he gets them to the play because you know, not many teams, except I guess the two teams right. that played the Cotton Bowl that year, change quarterbacks in the middle in the middle of the season when somebody's healthy and make the playoff or or you know compete for a national title. Clemson and Notre Dame both did that that year, but you know with Ian Book, it, it doesn't feel like he's ever been particularly spectacular, but he's always done exactly what they wanted him to do. The quietest 34 touchdowns and six interception season that you will find in college football history, I think, last year, at least among, you know, your power five teams. Um, the the issue for him is the knock that we in the media and fans often put on quarterbacks. Like, is he a winner? You know, can he can he get you in and out of a big spot? Um, he hasn't really done that. You know, they had the the fourth quarter. Virginia Tech. Yeah, fourth quarter, fourth quarter comeback against Virginia Tech was big. And that's that's kind of it. Um, that game doesn't feel like it would if you had if he had gone down and led the game winning drive at Georgia, which he you know had a chance to do. You know that's that's sort of the signature moment. It's like I, you know Matt Fortuna, our colleague, we were joking about the the sort of Heisman draft that you guys did, and Ian Books in the fifth round that you took I think, on my team, on baby, team after Brock Purdy, who just got destroyed by Notre Dame in the Camping World Bowl. It, yeah, but Brock Purdy's going to put up huge numbers. Yeah. That that that's that was more of a numbers play. <laughs> but it's just Brock Purdy's also on my team. Yeah. So it's just like this this guy's a third year starting quarterback at Notre Dame with really good numbers. I think when the regular season ended, he was one of three quarterbacks in the country or two quarterbacks in the country with Jalen Hurts with three thousand yards passing, five hundred yards rushing, and thirty touchdown passes. And yeah, it's it, basically it, anonymous. And, and the thing is, he. Well, and and he could have done better. I mean, that that's the thing. I I think we underrate his 2018. And he completed 68 percent of his passes in 2018. That's insane. Yeah, and I think that's one of the knocks on him last year. His statistically took kind of a step back in terms of completion percentage and and some of those stats that are easy to to look at. But you know, they had that was Miles Boykin, Chase Claypool, Cole Komet. Um, that was a, a pretty loaded offense, um, and that still had some some leftovers from that uh, Joe Moore award winning line from 2017. Like that was that was a pretty loaded skill position group. They didn't really have that last year, and this year that's that's sort of the big question for we're going to judge Ian Book based on really nothing of significance at running back returning and a completely rebuilt receiver room, and they turned over tight end entirely. So it's going to be a tough evaluation for Ian Book. I think he's going to get hammered this year uh, from like people in the media and on and talking heads because the stats aren't going to be that great. But I think what he's working with, he's really going to have to help that receiver room grow during the season. And that's, you know, that's not something that's going to show up in box scores that much. Well, the problem is they're going to have to be pretty good or Notre Dame will not win the games 
that we're talking about them needing to win. You know, they, they won't beat Wisconsin and Green Bay. They won't beat Clemson unless that group is better. Because let's be honest, Trevor Lawrence is a great quarterback, but if you take away T. Higgins, Justin Ross, Travis Etienne, the, the guys he's played with in the, in the skill positions, and you put him with lesser talents, well, his talent won't shine as bright. It's the same it's the same for anybody. So, you know, it, it, Ian Book will largely be judged by the talent around him, and a lot of that's on them. Now, he can help them, but a lot of it's going to be on those guys to to perform. And that's, I mean, that's second to the secondary being rebuilt. That's my biggest question about Notre Dame is can you get Braden Lindsey, uh, Kevin Austin, a couple of junior receivers. Jordan Johnson was a five-star freshman who's coming in. Um, you know, Chris Tyree is a four-star running back that they have not had that sort of speed back here in quite a while. Can you fast track some of these freshman offensive skill guys? And then can you get a couple surprise stories uh, among juniors who have been sort of good in and out of the lineup? Can they, can they turn it on the way Chase Claypool did last year? If, if that can happen, Ian Book can be in a good spot. You know what helps with all that is having a line that gives you time to throw, having a line that open holes for the for the backs, and they do have that. They do. They do. I, I think their tackles are very, very good. I think both their guards will play at the next level. Their their center, Jared Patterson, I think should be dynamite. That's and to me, that's like this is sort of a once you get into the guts of Notre Dame, the line is I think where Notre Dame could probably improve the most. Not because they were terrible last year, but because because they were just okay and they should like Notre Dame's line should not be just okay. Um, if Notre Dame's going to be great, they have to have a great offensive line. Um, that's, that should be the strength of a Northern Indiana Catholic school. Um, and they have the material to get there. It's a, it's a question of how does the coaching staff sort of bring that out in a way that, you know, they, they kind of were shuffling their feet, I think a little bit last season. On that note, Liam Eichenberg, most Notre Dame name ever. <laughs> He's up there. Uh, there. There have been definitely a lot of O apostrophe names over the years here that uh, have been in the list. I think, but Eichenberg is up there. He's got a little bit more of a German, I think, bent than maybe an Irish bent. But uh, well, the Liam. Yeah. yeah, the Liam is. But the, yeah, he's, you look at him. He looks. He very much looks like your typical Notre Dame offensive lineman um, <laughs> at left tackle, and it's amazing. I think in Brian Kelly's 10 seasons, he has not had a eventual first-round pick starting at left tackle in two games. <laughs> that, that is truly amazing. Well, there you go. There, there's your pipeline. Pete Sampson, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. That's it for today. Thank you so much for joining. A lot of fun talking football. We're going to keep doing this State of the Program series the rest of the summer. We've got a bunch more teams. Now, if you want to read a story today, I've got one. I've got my University of South Florida, the Bull state of the program. Jeff Scott in his first year after being a longtime assistant at Clemson, can he bring that attitude to a program that started off really well under Charlie Strong and then fell off the map in the last year and a half? We got lots more of these coming every day, a new state of the program. Later this week, we're going to be joined by Louisville's coach, Scott Satterfield. The Cardinals have players back on campus now. They're one of the first teams to get players back. And now they're going to have them working out starting next week. We're going to talk to Coach Satterfield about that process of getting the guys back in, getting them tested, 
And then what happens now that you've got him on campus and you're working him out? How do you get ready for a season at this point? He's going to help us answer those questions because, hey, he's actually doing it right now. So we'll talk to Scott Satterfield on Friday. Hope you'll tune in.